Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, you can open your, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, again, there are paperback Bibles underneath chairs in front of you, and you can grab one of those and turn to Genesis 3, I think it's page 2. I uh, want to uh, let you know that next Sunday is our annual Thanksgiving service. And so this is a very special time for us uh, here at New Life when we get to hear testimonies of Thanksgiving from uh, members of our congregation. And so that'll happen both services, 8.30 and 11, next week. So I'd encourage you to uh, do all that you can to be there. It's always wonderful to hear about God's work and the lives of our people. So the service will run a little differently next Sunday. Pastor Brian will be bringing us uh, a message on Thanksgiving, so that's next Sunday. Uh, but today, we're continuing through our sermon series in the book of Genesis. I think I told you a while ago we'd probably spend four sermons in the chapter three alone, and that's indeed what we have done. There's just so much here to consider, but we are coming to the conclusion of Genesis chapter three. I'll be reading verses 20 to 24. Uh, when I grew up, I had the, the privilege, I, I think it was a blessing, of uh, living in the same house all through my upbringing. I grew up in Carmel, Indiana, and uh, lived in the same house through my elementary years and junior high years, and high school years, and college years. Same house. Got into my young adult life, and mom and dad stayed there, and so we just kind of always had this, this home, this place where we could go, a place of comfort and stability. Uh, through my adult life, the house remained in the family. Mom and dad eventually moved down to Florida, but when they did, they sold the house to my sister. And so my sister moved into the house with her husband, and uh, the house continued then to be in the family. And there was, it was just kind of a sense of comfort, you know, just knowing about this homestead that is steady and stable in our lives, and that's why it hit me actually pretty hard, harder than I thought, when my sister decided to sell that house uh, this past summer. Somebody else is living in my house now. Uh, it's just an odd feeling that this place of stability is now gone, not in our lives, a place that I'll never go to again. I feel a little bit like I've been exiled. <laughs> lost a home, in a sense. I, I tell you that story because uh, that captures something of, I think, what is common to the, the human experience, uh, a feeling that is common to all of humanity, that is, the, the feeling of having been displaced from our home, a, a feeling in this world of being a wanderer, a pilgrim, uh, a sojourner, a journeyman, uh, this feeling of not really knowing where home is, feeling like we're traveling and going somewhere, but we don't always know where. Have you ever felt that way? Kind of restless, displaced, longing for somewhere, but you're not even sure really where it is, feeling, at least spiritually speaking, like you don't have a home. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at here in Genesis chapter 3, I think this passage gives us an explanation for that very common human 
experience. We're, again, continuing through the sermon series in the book of Genesis, the gospel according to Genesis. Um, Let me remind you, as I've said a couple of times, what we're reading here in these early chapters are not things that are just relevant to Israel or to Christians or to the church or believers in God. These are things that have been set up uh, at the very beginning of the world, and so they have implications for all of human experience throughout all of human history. And it just seems like this is a very common experience. Again, as human beings, we're on the move, but where are we going? And do you know where you are going? So, let's take a look at this passage, chapter 3, verses 20 to 24. If you're able, you can uh, stand. We are still here in the Garden of Eden, where we've been for the last few weeks. Um, The forbidden fruit has been eaten. Um, Humankind has fallen under the condemnation of God. The world is cursed, and yet we've also seen this first promise of the gospel that we learned about last week, the proto-evangelium in chapter 3, verse 15, the promise of a descendant who's going to come and is going to kill, crush the head of Satan, but there's one more event here uh, that we're going to look at before we move out of the garden. So, chapter 3, 20 to 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let's hope our roof has no leaks. Uh, We'll see. Has been a problem in the past. We'll see. All right, so um, three things here in this passage, and the first is kind of what I've been telling you already. What we see in this passage is that we, and by we, I just mean as a human race, we have been evicted from our original home. That is what's true of all of us. We've been evicted from our original home. So we're going to start here in verse 22, where there's this kind of internal dialogue going on in God's mind, he, he says this, he says, behold, the man has become like one of us. Well, that pronoun there, us, you might remember back in chapter 1, verse 28, where we saw that it said, let us make man in his image. We're getting another peek here into multiple persons within the Godhead. Just a tiny little glimpse of Uh, what we know today to be true of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're getting a little peek into that, but um, more relevant to our purposes here today, we see that what God says is that these people, Adam and Eve, they have become like one of us. And you might recall that that was the serpent's promise to Adam and Eve, that if you eat the fruit, you know, you're going to be like God. And that's exactly what happened, except it wasn't what they expected. And as we've reviewed before, that seems to be Satan's tactic. He gives a lot of half-truths 
you know, yeah, there's one, in one sense their eyes were open, but they weren't opened in quite the way that they were expecting. They didn't expect the shame. They didn't expect the guilt. They didn't expect the alienation from God and from each other. Satan didn't tell them those things. But that's indeed what has happened. And so God says, their eyes have been opened. But now, here's another problem, and that is that there is another tree in this garden, the tree of life. Remember, they've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but now there's this tree called the tree of life, and there's a concern that Adam and Eve might eat of that tree. Now, they've already eaten of one tree, so the likelihood that they might eat of another tree is pretty high. And so there's concern here, and what God says is, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's verse 22. So the implication seems to be that there's power in this tree to enable Adam and Eve to live forever. And so God in his mercy recognizing that he doesn't want Adam and Eve to live forever in their current fallen state because that's what would happen. There'd be apparently no change, no opportunity for change, no opportunity for redemption if in their fallen state they were to eat of the tree of life. And so God sends him out, verse 23. The Lord God sent him out, and it's even a little stronger in verse 24. He drove them out. Now, we just have to back up and think about how this must have affected Adam and Eve. Remember, this was their home. The garden was their home. This is the place where Adam and Eve got married. Uh, this is the place where God commanded them to work. This is where their occupation would um, continue. This is... Um, a place where they're going to have children and raise their family and grow up and live. This is all they knew, this garden place called home. And now God has kicked them out, evicted them. It's like a landlord. You don't pay your rent, you get kicked out of your apartment, and that's what God is doing here. He is kicking humanity out of the garden. A dictionary of biblical imagery says this, in a single moment, <clears throat> the expulsion from the garden made the entire human race an exile from its original home. It is impossible to overstate the importance of this banishment, which awakens the wellsprings of human regret and nostalgia. That's that feeling I'm talking about. That lostness feeling that we tend to have. It all started here. Now, this gets to a very common biblical theme that we see. In many cases, we see people who are kind of acting as pilgrims. They're traveling. They're on the road. Remember Abraham. God comes to Abraham, leave your home, and off you go. And so Abraham goes, and he doesn't know where he's going. And remember uh, Israel. They are uh, freed from Egypt, and then they're in the wilderness, and they're wandering in the wilderness for all these years with no home. And eventually, they get into the promised land, and they settle there, but because of their sin, they get exiled and sent away to another country, and they get sent out of their home. And so we see this throughout Scripture, this theme of exile, homelessness, separation. Even Jesus, it says in the Gospels, um, that the foxes and the birds you know, have a place to call home, but Jesus doesn't even have a place to lay his head. So there's Jesus has experienced this same feeling that you and I have of being away from home. This is the human race, friends. On the move, restless, got to get up and go, got to go to the next place, got to accomplish the next goal, move, move, move. We're going somewhere, but we don't know where. Where are we going? Um, one of the books that kind of captures this 
is uh, On the Road, the great Jack Kerouac book written in 1957, very famous book that the whole book is basically capturing this very theme. And uh, it says this in, uh, about one of the characters in the book. He had no place he could stay in without getting tired of it. And because there was nowhere to go, but everywhere. Nowhere to go, but everywhere. Where do I go? Where do I go next? Have you ever felt that way? Restless, alienated, displaced? One of the reasons this feeling is so strong, particularly with regard to the Garden of Eden, is because the Garden of Eden is not just a garden. We shouldn't think of it as as if it's just a farm. There's something more going on here, and that is that as we look throughout all of Scripture, we see hence that this garden is actually a kind of a temple. It's a sanctuary. It's a place for humankind to walk with their God and their creator. And there's endless numbers of fascinating little connections. I'll just give you a few examples. But it says here in verse 24 about, uh, talks about uh, the, uh, drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. So apparently there's a a way in and out on the the east side of the garden. Well, that ends up showing up throughout the scriptures in relation to the, the sanctuary, the temple, the tabernacle, that that was the entryway into the temple was on the east. And you might remember all of these rivers that were flowing out of the garden at the end of chapter two. Well, look to Ezekiel and you'll see that rivers of life are flowing out of the temple. You see these cherubim that are set up guarding the way to uh, the garden. Well, when you get to see descriptions of the temple, you'll see that there are cherubim that are embroidered on the veil to keep people out of the Holy of Holies. And most importantly, just as in the temple or the tabernacle, that is the place where God dwelt. That's exactly true of the garden as well, right? This is the place where God walked. He walked in the garden. This was his dwelling place and his place to dwell with his creatures. And that's what the temple, the tabernacle, was supposed to be. And so this garden is not just a place to grow crops and have a family. This is a place where God is worshipped. And so now that Adam and Eve have been evicted, it's not just from a place, but it's from relationship with their God. They're alienated and separated from God, sent out into the harsh world to work the ground out there, not in here anymore, and apart from their God. That ultimately is the explanation for these, these, these feelings of lostness that we have. It's not just that we're not in that place, it's that we're separated from God and we don't know our creator apart from Jesus. That's what accounts for this dull ache in our hearts. That's what accounts for the inward groaning that we all know is very true. Even as Christians, we inwardly groan. That's what accounts for the lonely feeling that we have, even when we're around other people. Even when things are going well, we have a lonely feeling in the heart. There's a songwriter named Robert Earl Keane from Texas. He's written a song called Lonely Feeling that just captures this so well. He says, he says, it's the crack in the sidewalk right next to a pay telephone. It's someone's recorder, okay, voicemail. It's someone's voicemail when you're hoping someone is home. It's an hour to kill, to do what you please, but nobody's up for shooting the breeze. It's a lonely feeling, it's like a disease. It's a lonely feeling, you pray that it leaves. 
It's your best friend from high school who sees you and wishes you well. You try to break through, but you run out of stories to tell. So you bid him goodbye, and you step into space. There are so many questions that you cannot face. It's a lonely feeling taking his place. It's a lonely feeling you just can't erase. Have you felt that? This is what the scriptures are giving us an account for. We've been displaced, we've been evicted from our home and because of our sin we've been separated from God and ever since then we have been restless wanderers on the earth. C.S. Lewis, very famous quote, says this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That's what we're getting. We're getting hints of the fact that this world in its current state is actually not our home and that we're made for another place and that's what we're ultimately longing for. Now there's two kinds of restlessness. Uh, A guy named Jamie Smith talks about this in in his book on uh, St. Augustine. Two kinds of restlessness. There's one restlessness that comes from not knowing where your home is and that's the typical experience of the unbeliever. The unbeliever has this restlessness as well because he or she is part of the human race, but when you're an unbeliever, you don't, what's on the other side, you know? As an unbeliever, you don't know. So you feel restless, but you feel like you're on the road of endless exhaustion, Jamie Smith says. That's one way to think of this restlessness, but there's another way to think of it also, and that is that you know where home is, but you're not there yet. And that's the experience of the believer. We know where our home is, but we're still on the road. We're still traveling. We're not there yet. And there's lots of bumps and obstacles and challenges and difficulties on the way. And we still also have that inward groaning, even as we are on the road. And Peter uh, sums this up for us a couple times in his letter. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Later in chapter 2, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's us, friends, as Christians. Even as believers, we're still exiles because we've been exiled from our original home. And we're on the road, and life is hard. We long to get to where we're headed, but we're not there yet. I, I just think sometimes, and I know I've felt this way, sometimes I've felt like, shouldn't I be happier being a Christian? Have you ever felt that way? I'm a Christian, my sins are forgiven, I belong to God, so why don't I feel happier? As a Christian, sure, I mean, you've got joy in your salvation, but shouldn't you feel happier? (laughs) I think what we're reading here explains it. The reason that you don't always feel so happy is you've been displaced from your home. You've been evicted, and you're not home yet, and you're still traveling. And we're going to get to home one day, and we long for that, but until then, we inwardly groan because we've been evicted from our original home. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. Not only have we been evicted, but we've also been banished from returning to our home. So look at this. After the expulsion from the garden, what God does is he prevents Adam and Eve from returning. So look at verse 24. There's two ways that this happens. He sets up two things. First of all, he sets up the cherubim. In verse 24, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the the cherubim. These are 
kind of like angelic creatures. Um, they typically throughout scripture symbolize God's presence. So something symbolizing the power of God is, is set up. But there's also set up this flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You might notice that word guard is the word that God used to charge Adam when he put him in the garden saying, Adam, guard the garden. And Adam didn't do that, remember? The serpent came in. And so it's almost God's way of saying here, well, Adam, if you're not going to do it, I'll do it for you. And so God sets up this flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life, to keep Adam and Eve from returning to the garden. We have another interesting similarity here to the, the temple. I already mentioned this just briefly, but um, <clears throat> uh, you know, once you get to the Old Testament and you see the, the temple being set up and, and the holy of holies, you might recall that that holy of holies is a place that nobody can enter. The high priest can once a year, but otherwise nobody can enter. And if you do go in there, you're going to die. That's what it says in Leviticus 16. <laughs> going in there is punishable by death. And that seems to be what's happening here. It's like God is saying, if you come back into the garden, you're going to die by this flaming sword. Because the garden is the place of the holy of holies. And because of man and women's sin against God, they cannot enter back into the presence of their creator. And so God guards it, protects it, walls it off. You're not coming back here. You're not coming back. Again, if I can refer to, to C.S. Lewis, um, I, I actually quoted this a few weeks ago, but it's, it's so pertinent here. You know, he says that all of human history, all of the war and the ambition and the efforts to make money, all of it is merely an effort to find something other than God to make us happy. <laughs> Remember that? And I would just amend that just slightly and say all of human history is basically the efforts of humankind to find a way back to the garden. And the problem is, we can't get back there. And God has walled it off. It's impossible. You can't get there from here. <laughs> if you've ever given directions to somebody, particularly in Munsee with train tracks and everything, sometimes you might say, you know, you can't get there from here, at least right now. Well, that's the way it was in the garden. There's no way to get back into this place. It reminds me of the... Uh, Dialogue that Jesus had with his disciples in the Gospels where the disciples say to him, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with man, that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. On our own, we can't get back in. We can't go back. But with God, all things are possible. St. Augustine has this sermon where he says that it's a little bit like seeing your homeland off in the distance you see the place that you know you belong. You see the skyline, but the problem is that there is a great body of water between you and that place. You're cut off by the sea. There's no way to get there. There's no bridge. You long for your homeland, but you can't get there. But Augustine says this, it might be impossible, but what if God sends a boat? <laughs> what if God sends a boat? And he says that boat is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this in this sermon, no one can cross the sea of this world unless carried over it on the cross of Christ. It's Jesus who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets home except through me. 
So we can't get back to our original home, but through Jesus, we can get to our proper home. Now, before we move on to the next point, I think it's important to note here something uh, that is implied, and that is that uh, the the Bible is not promising to us a a return to Eden. In, In other words, the Scriptures doesn't place our hope in a return to the past, Uh, Some of us are plagued by what I would call the idolatry of nostalgia. Always longing for the good old days. Always thinking about a time in the past when things were better. Maybe it was when you were in college. Maybe it was when you were a kid. Maybe it's the 1950s. Maybe it was the 1700s. And we're always looking to the past and thinking, oh, life would be so much better if we could just go back. I mean, fact is there were really never any good old days except for the Garden of Eden before the fall. Those were the good old days. Since then, the world has been laboring under the fall and the infection of sin. No matter how far back back you go, no matter what glory period you have in mind, it was still a fallen world. It was still plagued by sin and suffering and pain and evil. We are not going backwards, friends. That's not our ultimate hope, going back to the way things were. That's not the promise of the Scripture. We're not going back to the garden. The garden is not heaven, actually. We're going forward. God has a home for us in the future. Now, of course, we value the past. Don't misunderstand me. We learn from the past. Our salvation was accomplished in the past. What Jesus did for us is in the past. And that's what makes the gospel so wonderful. It's finished in the past. And so... We value the past, but we're not going back to the past. We're going forward. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7 gives us uh, a warning about this. It says, say not, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. (laughs) It's not from wisdom. We're looking ahead, and the writer to the Hebrews captures this as well in a way that's a little more specific to our theme here today, talking about... um, Uh, The great believers in in the past who walked by faith and uh, relied on God's promises, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, that is the nation of Israel, they would have had opportunity to return. They would have had an opportunity to go back to the way things were, but as it is, no, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They were looking ahead. They were looking to the future, not going backwards. And that leads us to our last point here today. As believers, we look forward to our heavenly home, not to the Garden of Eden, but to a different home promised in our future. So, let's see how that comes out. Uh, This is the gospel according to Genesis, right? So, where is the gospel in this text? And and I believe it's here, and it's in verses 20 and 21 in particular. And, uh, you know, when you read this to begin with, you might not have thought, ah, there's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, but, but I think it's here, it's in cryptic form, and I should make just a note here because there's, there's an interpretive principle that applies very often to uh, the way we look at the Old Testament. If I can teach you a, a new phrase here, there's something called sensus plenier, which means fuller sense. That is, there are occasions when God's intention in the writing of a text is greater or supersedes the intention of the human author. 
That is that the human author writes something, but God, by his spirit inspiring that human author, has something more in mind. There's something more in the text than even the author realized. That's what census plenier means. And that's certainly applicable to Genesis 3.15, the promise of a descendant coming. I don't think that Eve knew that that was Jesus of Nazareth, right? Nor did she know all the implications of what Jesus would do. And so um, we have that here also in some ways. Look at verse 20. The man, Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. There's, there's gospel here, I think. Now, Adam had already named the woman woman. Remember, that was back in 223. So now he gives a more personal name to Eve, um, Eve. And the word Eve means life giver, life giver. And so how interesting is it that the woman is the one who deceived the man to eat the fruit leading to death, but the promise here is that one day there's going to be a woman who's going to give birth to a God-man who's going to lead to life. The Savior is going to come from a woman, born of a woman. It's going to be a descendant of Eve. That's why she's called here the mother of all the living. I think there's more than just physical life here. There is spiritual life promised in the long-term descendant of Eve. But we also see here in verse 21, look at verse 21, and then the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, remember that Adam and Eve had already clothed themselves, remember, with the fig leaves when they were covered with shame? So they're already covered, but now God enters in and he wants to cover them with something different. So I, I guess the fig leaves were, were, were removed. And what God does is he takes animal skins and covers them. So God wants to cover them in a different way. Now, friends, there's only one way to get an animal skin. And that's to kill the animal. That's to sacrifice an animal. And we know throughout the Old Testament, we see a very elaborate system of animal sacrifices. And so what we're seeing here, I believe, is the very first sacrifice, which, the very first sacrifice to cover sins, which should point us to the very last sacrifice that will fully and completely cover sins. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews tells us. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, by the sacrifice of himself. So here's a hint. There's a fuller sense here. This could be pointing us to the final sacrifice of our Savior to cover us for our sins. The fullness of the gospel is hinted at here. It's not just forgiveness of sins that we have by trusting in Jesus. It's the fact that God also in his mercy and his grace, when you trust Jesus, wraps you in the garments of salvation. He puts on you a a robe of righteousness. He not only says your sins are forgiven, he says that you, through faith in Jesus Christ, are righteous in my sight. And when I look at you, I don't see your filthy sin and rebellion. I see the righteousness of my son attributed, imputed, given to you through faith alone. Already we're seeing Genesis 3, a picture of this wonderful, glorious gospel. And this is where it begins for you to know where you're going. 
you want assurance of where you're going, you need to repent, trust, and believe in this Jesus who has died and has risen for you to clothe you with his robes of righteousness. Do you know this Savior? Do you know that by trusting in him that you have assurance of where you're going? That you're not a restless wanderer, but that you have purpose and God has a place for you? Do you know that when you die, you're not You don't have to worry about what's happening after you die. You don't have to worry about the next life. You're going to be ushered into the presence of Jesus immediately, just like Jan Ernst is right now. And that eventually what's going to happen is Jesus is going to bring you and all of his people back to what is called the new heavens and the new earth, which the scripture says is the home of righteousness. And that's our final home, our heavenly home in the future, not in the past, but a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Not a garden, but a city is what is promised to us as believers in Jesus. So one of my favorite stories of of Billy Graham uh, is is this. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, back in 1990, he was speaking at a luncheon in North Carolina. And um, uh, he had already been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at the time, so he wasn't doing well health-wise. And he was standing there in a, in a really impressive suit. And he starts speaking to these people at the luncheon. And he begins by telling them a story of Albert Einstein. And he says that Albert Einstein was one day on a train. And he's traveling. And um, he sees the conductor walking down the aisle. And so he starts scrambling for his ticket. And he's trying to find the ticket. And the conductor recognizes that he's looking for the ticket. But the conductor also recognizes that this is Albert Einstein. And so he goes to him and he says, look, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. It's okay. You don't have to show me your ticket. We know who you are. You're famous. We know who you are. Don't worry about it. And Einstein says, "Uh, young man, I too know who I am. My problem is I don't know where I'm going. That's why I'm looking for my ticket. I don't know where I'm going. And so Billy Graham tells this story, and then he shifts it back to himself, and he says, well, here I am. I'm in this brand-new suit. And he says, you know what? I bought this suit because this is the suit that I'm going to be buried in. And he says, when you hear that I'm past, I don't want you to think of this suit, but I want you to remember that I know who I am, and I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. No fear of death. No fear of the next life because Billy Graham was a believer in Jesus and knew where he was going and we know where he is now. So you friends, you might know who you are. I'm sure you do. But do you know where you're going? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that it gives us. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus that we know is true and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.